Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 45 with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And we are all remote today, joined by Rob Baresi. How are you guys? What's going on, Rob? Hey, Rob. Day who knows what of quarantine. I forgot my mom's birthday yesterday, so I don't even, I have no idea what day it is. <laughs> Mark. Mark's just losing his mind. I am all out of sorts, but uh, Rob, you're you're uh, recording from your your office. It looks like over there at uh, Starkweather yeah. and Shepley. You got it. Teamwork makes the dream work. So uh, you know, podcasts are an essential business. So we're finding a way to make it happen. <laughs> we appreciate you joining us today. How's your? I've taken to asking people how is your day going rather than how are you. I just feel like that smaller question can be answered more discreetly. Absolutely. So how's your day going? <laughs> so day's going great. Uh, recording my first podcast, so this has been uh, this has been a great Friday. Nice. Excellent. Cool. Nothing to be nervous about. Right? Ray and Dan can be a little intimidating. Yeah. But, <laughs> so know. today we're talking about uh, the wide world of insurance and why we should have it and how do we mitigate our risks within the, the job sites. Rob, random question for you. Do you have anybody that's tried to claim or are there even any claims for this whole pandemic right now in terms of loss of business? I've heard that basically, even if you have a rider for some kind of pandemic, uh, people are, are not being able to, to get anything for it. We, we know everybody's curtain right now. Right, right. So great question. And uh, I'm inclined to take the fifth. So this is this has been a, a crazy time for everybody. And um, I've been asked this question probably two dozen times over the last two to three weeks. And uh, on each occasion, it's almost like taking the Hippocratic oath, you know, promise to do no harm, but, you know, give people the best advice you possibly can. The way the policy reads is there has to be direct physical damage in order to trigger a loss under loss of business income. Okay. So there's, there's any number of coverage triggers built into a particular policy and a coverage trigger needs to be a covered cause of loss. And the trigger in loss of business income is direct physical loss to your job site or your business. And that would that would in turn trigger coverage for loss of business income. In the absence of direct physical loss, which we're dealing with a virus, obviously, as if that weren't enough of a prevention for coverage to, to, to trigger, there's also typically virus and bacteria exclusions built into the policy itself anyway. So inevitably, this whole thing is going to be litigated in the courts. It is already throughout the country. Different states have different lawsuits going on, whether it's from the hospitality business or construction or whatever. So it's going to take a lot of time for this to work itself out through the courts, through the states, through the federal government. What I'm advising all my clients to do is keep extremely diligent records in terms of how this pandemic is affecting your business in terms of cost overheads, extra expenses incurred to work remotely or accommodate your employees and your customers. Obviously, any dip in revenue or increased costs associated with working around the pandemic. And then, um, and we're even going as far as to, in some cases, present the claim to the insurance company, inevitably to get it declined just to get it on record. And then uh, down the road, we can go back and, and if there's a change to statutes or laws or even the, the, the contractual wording within the insurance policy itself, which in Massachusetts, it seems like the attorney general and the governor is actually trying to force, and actually the president, I think, came out and uh, made a comment about this, trying to force insurance companies to retroactively honor business income claims. So 
it's definitely a mess out there. I'm just advising everybody to dot every I, cross every T, because I'm sure something will come out the other end. That's great advice. I'm on uh, the board for a nonprofit in East Boston that focuses on low-income housing. And uh, we have a large increased costs for cleaning every single day, twice a day. And that's one of those costs that we're now just documenting. Uh, yeah. We're looking at our GL coverage for that virus and bacteria exclusion. And it's, it's costs like that that we're, we're just trying to make sure we keep track of. And again, it all comes down to this this coverage trigger and this coverage wording built into the policy. But like I've got clients of mine that are incurring additional costs for supplies. So they have suppliers that make products. And although they're domestic suppliers, the product itself is manufactured overseas. In most cases in China, we can't get it into the United States. It has to be produced domestically at an increased cost throwing off uh, budgets left and right. Or in some cases, you can't get the product. You can't deliver your your product on time. So we actually call that uh, contingent business income, right? So so my ability to do my job and produce my product is contingent upon a supplier or somebody else elsewhere. And again, that coverage trigger comes back to direct physical loss. So my supplier has to have a fire or get struck by lightning before it could even trigger contingent business income loss on my policy as well too. So this affects everybody up and down the supply line. Interesting. How are insurance companies dealing with the pandemic outside of just general, these general claims. You know, if I have a typical loss due to fire, flood, et cetera, are adjusters even coming out to buildings due to this? And like, how is this whole thing, how does the whole process work during these times? Great question. So fortunately, I haven't had a, a fire in the last, uh, you know, month and a half, two months. But on everything that I can see from audits to pre-inspections to loss control, everything is being done remotely. So, so adjusters and auditors and risk control and loss control safety specialists, they're not going out to job sites. Everything is done either by phone or, or by email or remotely. So again, fortunately, I haven't suffered a physical damage loss in the last month or two, but I would imagine that if it were to occur, everything would have to be done with pictures, uh, maybe a virtual tour. You know, everyone's going to have to find a way to, to make it happen because who can sit on their hands for two months with a building that's burned out, not, not recoup any expenses to try to get themselves back, back in action and, and indemnified properly. And so moving past the COVID-19 uh, insurance stocks, let's think more broadly in terms of risk management. As a developer, I kind of think of, of maybe three to four different food groups for insurance. General liability, builder's risk, workers' comp, and then maybe a dwelling and fire policy. I think one question just from the get-go is we have an active project. Builder's risk and general liability are, are, are two very important policies. Can right. you talk a little bit about the differences and what each one covers? Sure. So I'm actually inclined to take a step back right? And just explain that insurance policies are a contract, right? They're a contract between you and the insurance carrier, basically stating that you're going to promise to execute on XYZ in return for an insurance carrier promising to indemnify you in the event of a loss. So that XYZ is very, very often overlooked. And I can't underestimate, I'm giving you like a typical political answer and taking a hard left turn and not answering your question whatsoever no, okay. and going in a completely <laughs> different direction. But I, I will come back to it, right? So sure. that XYZ that you're promising to do as an owner, developer, general contractor is to have proper risk transfer for what you're subbing out and the people that you're bringing onto the job site, right? for the coverages like general liability, workers' comp, property, 
property that's being installed, property that's being delivered, et cetera. So the insurance policy, I won't go as far as to call it useless in the event of a loss because it will pay you, but it may, may only pay you once if you don't have those proper risk control, risk transfer conditions in place. And all that comes down to really is a very, I make it sound like it's a lot more complicated than it is. And that's why insurance companies and brokers are able to charge what we do because we make it sound a lot more complicated, but it really isn't. All it is, is an agreement between you and a subcontractor or whomever you're having come do work on your behalf, stating that they agree to hold you harmless and indemnify you in the event that they cause a claim right? The buck should stop with them. And that makes practical sense. You know, you have a plumber that's working on your behalf. They don't seal a pipe properly. Uh, you know, they turn the water on, it leaks everywhere. Who should pay for that claim? You or the plumber? Plumber. The plumber, right? He yeah. caused it. He didn't, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And, you know, at the end of the day, the buck should stop with him. It's real simple. I call it the, the superfecta, right? So it's um, hold harmless and indemnification, additional insured, so you're getting added as additional insured on whomever you're hiring. Primary and non-contributory wording, basically stating that their policy is primary and your policy is non-contributory in the event that they cause a loss. And then waiver of subrogation, basically stating that, again, they cause a loss, their insurance company pays, their insurance company cannot, therefore, go and get their money back from your insurance company. Okay? Rob, can, can you back up a little? Sure. Those listening, starting with hold harmless and then additionally insured. Can you, yep. can you give a little more on each of those? Yeah, so it's it's techno babble on our part here, but basically hold harmless states that that the person agreeing to that contract is basically stating that they're not going to hold your feet to the fire in the event that they cause a loss. They're holding you harmless. You're not involved. You're not going to get suit papers if they drop a wrench on somebody's head. The buck is going to stop with them. And so that's a feature of a contract, uh, a feature of a subcontract between you if you're acting as a general contractor and your subcontractor. Correct. And that should that should go up and down the line. So I, I wrote an article probably five years ago called The Hot Potato of Indemnification. So you've got owner and, yeah. and then you've got the design team and then you've got general contractor and then you've got subcontractor and then you've got sub-subcontractors. And it's not it's not a malicious thing, but everybody should be pushing that hot potato of indemnification and hold harmless, pushing it down the line so that whoever actually ends up causing the loss should be the one to pay for the claim, you know? And all these things really need to dovetail and work together in order for a claim to be adjusted properly and for everybody to come out of it the same way that they went into it. So the insurance company is simply the financial mechanism used to pay for the loss. It's incumbent upon us as brokers and you as a GC and the owner and the developer, everybody to communicate together in terms of what their expectations are for a claim to get adjusted, who's responsible for what. And, and really, it, again, it sounds a lot more complicated than it is. I've got a simple two-page contractor, subcontractor contract that I recommend to my clients in the absence of a, of a contract that they should utilize. And basically, all it does is stipulate who agrees to what, right? You're going you're gonna to work safely. You're going to keep a clean job site. I'm going to pay you on time. And oh, by the way, you're going to hold me harmless and indemnify me in the event that you cause a claim. Here's some minimum insurance requirements that I expect you to carry. And then you're going to add me as additional insured, including completed operations on your policy. And all this stuff, Mark, doesn't cost anything. Nine and a half times out of 10, it's built into the insurance policy already. We just need to tell the insurance policy how we want them to pay, if that makes sense. One thing you just said there that struck me is 
and including completed operations for the subcontractor. Sure. Is sure. that something I should look for? Like if I get a certificate of insurance from my plumber, uh, yeah. it names me as an additionally insured or my entity. Yes. Do I should I be looking for like some line within that certificate that notes that they have completed co- operations yeah. coverage? Absolutely. Just as important as getting it on the certificate, actually more important is having it in a contract. As long as it's in the contract, it will trigger it under the policy because all general liability policies have um, contractual liability built into it. So that basically you're insured for the types of contracts that the insurance policy stipulates that you put your name to. You know, one of them is sidetrack agreements, elevator maintenance agreements, um, something to do with railroads, et cetera, et cetera. And contractual liability for for construction all right if they don't have it but they signed a contract that says that they're responsible for that then i can rely on that so the, the certificate of insurance is is one step away from being meaningless all it is is proof of coverage at that particular time that your plumber has a policy in effect with with those limits that are stipulated on the on the certificate of insurance that could change tomorrow Right. So it's it's very important to have it in a contract that you're requiring um, completed operations and then getting that certificate of insurance and, and documenting your file together. So there, there's varying kinds of additional insured endorsements, and they've evolved over time since 1985. In 1985, there was there was one additional insurance, uh, one additional insured endorsement. And that's the that's the gold standard. And it's very difficult, near impossible to get that 85 edition, right? Over time, they've split it into two forms, the CG2010 and the CG2037. One is ongoing operations and one is completed operations. So it's very important to have both those together. And again, nine times out of 10, whoever you're hiring is going to have that blanket additional insured endorsement. Every carrier has a different one, Travelers, Selective. You name it, they have their own blanket additional insured endorsement that will give both built in together. And and again, that that blanket endorsement is probably going to include waiver subrogation, primary non-contributory, and all the basic things that are usually involved in a construction contract. So a lot of guys, general contractors and subcontractors like, get very shy about asking for this stuff because either they think it's going to cost money or it's going to open a can of worms. Nine times out of 10, it's already built into the policy anyway. It's just a matter of putting it in writing that that's what you're requiring of them. So you're saying that you still need to get the additional insured certificate of insurance, even though sure. I think earlier you mentioned that it's kind of useless because it's just point in time. But most importantly is the contract. And everything has to dovetail together. So the contract, the certificate, and the policy from the sub Everything needs to back back itself up so that for what you're requiring in a contract, by right, the broker, the subs broker should be providing you a certificate compliant with that, stating that everything you're asking for in that contract, that superfecta of uh, hold harmless indemnification, additional insured waiver subrogation, primary non-contributory, that's included in their in their insurance policy. And the certificate is just proof of that at that time. So, yes, I, I would say get it in writing across the board. Absolutely. If I get a certificate of insurance naming my company as an additionally insured, would you recommend that I also name me personally as an additionally insured party? Probably more. I don't know why. I just that was taught. Probably more of a legal question, and it would depend probably how you're set up. If you're a sole proprietor, LLC, corporation, whatever. But I I would say no, it's not necessary. I mean, if you're if you're an LLC, actually, there's probably some verbiage in there. I give most of my clients like a sample certificate of insurance that they should be providing to their subs 
And usually it says some verbiage along the lines of um, Joe Smith, LLC, its members, employees, agents, I, I, you know, mm-hmm. the rest of it are included as additional insured. And that's really all you need to do. Not to berate this topic any longer. Uh, I, I've seen on almost all the COIs that I get that it's covering you for G, general liability, but there's no mention or specific exclusion for the workers' comp side. Is that an industry standard or are we doing something that we should change? So it's nice to get everything together on one certificate of insurance and, and more often than not, you're able to. So you've got the general liability. You can, you can usually put in some, um, some specific property uh, coverage, but basically it's general liability, auto liability, workers' comp and umbrella. And then there's a little box on the bottom that's left blank for coverages that we can include, like pollution liability, professional liability, employers, uh, EPLI coverage. But you should be able to get the workers' comp on the same cert. The only time that you're usually not able to do that is when the subcontractor has their workers' comp in the assigned risk pool in Massachusetts. Only then the broker has no authority to issue proof of coverage on workers' comp. That can only come direct from the carrier when it's written in the assigned risk pool. And I'll tell you, most most smaller sole proprietor trade contractors will probably have their workers' comp in the assigned risk pool. General liability. I had, I'll share it. Yeah. Let's go back to that. We were talking about the hold harmless primary. Additional favor of subrogation. Yeah. Yeah. Primary. Yeah. The superfecta. How can I elaborate? I think we're still working our way to Mark's original question, right? (laughs) 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 Oh, so so you you were talking about general liability and builders risk and sort of the coverages that are built into that and how they respond uh, in in the event of a claim or right. So so all right, let's say we've we've gotten ourselves to that point where. We're general contractors, owner, developers, all right? We've got a solid subcontractor agreement in place. So everybody that we hire to come build a beautiful three-unit condo or six-unit condo in South Boston is going gonna, is gonna to show up on site with a signed contract and a certificate of insurance that names all that stuff that we just talked about. What coverages do they have and, and how should that be responding? So let's talk builder's risk if you want to jump into that one. So the builder's risk usually procured on behalf of the owner. On bigger projects, it can it can usually be procured by the general contractor. They may have a master builder's risk program where they're able to, to negotiate better terms and pricing, or it just makes more sense for the general contractor to have control of the project. But more often than not, on your on the stuff that we see every day, guys, you know, the, the three-unit condo conversion or six-unit or 20-unit, or I would say probably even up to even a hundred unit, uh, whether apartment building or condo, the owner will usually have some control over placing the builder's risk coverage, right? So all that does is protect the property while it's under construction. And there's there's two types of builder's risk policies that we can place. There's one for renovation and there's one for ground up construction. Really important to know that when you're doing a renovation, which probably that that's more often the stuff that we're going to see, you know, the, you know, you buy a three family and you turn it into three condos or something even bigger than that. So you've got the existing structure that we're leaving intact, but we're maybe bringing it down to the studs and then we're putting in X amount of dollars in new construction. That existing structure is only going to be covered on an actual cash value basis. A lot of banks don't necessarily understand that because they're looking at it like they're giving you a loan for $800,000 and they want to see $800,000 in coverage. The insurance company is going to look at that and say, we're only covering the existing structure for actual cash value because why are we going to give you replacement cost on a, on a, on a piece of property that you're tearing apart? You know. Yeah. On the flip side, they're going to give you replacement cost on 
the money that you're putting into it, the new fixtures, the new walls, the, the new floors, windows, you know, soup to nuts on, on that. So for that reason, it's really important to, as a broker for me and as an owner developer GC to really have a solid construction budget that they can share with their broker and go through it line by line and differentiate between existing structure or if it's ground up construction, hard costs, soft costs, costs that are not recurring that we don't have to insure, like paving, like landscaping, like foundations. You know, God forbid a building burns to the ground. Odds are you're not going to have to pour the foundation again. You're not going to have to pave the driveway again. So that's stuff that we really shouldn't be paying a premium on because the insurance company isn't going to pay for it in the event of a loss. Got it. Yeah, we were just looking at that for a project I have coming up and uh, talking about things like landscaping, site work and utilities, even for, uh, I might argue concrete uh, for your frost walls, your footings. Even if you have a terrible fire, I don't yep. think those go any, anywhere. So by reducing yep. that, that entire cost that you are insuring, you should bring your premium down. Absolutely. Architectural drawings, procurement, all that stuff we, we like to pull out of the construction budget and, and ensure only those aspects of the job that are at risk. This is a little bit of a digression, but what about your design team? I'm always requesting certificates of insurance from my architect, my civil engineer, my geotech. Should we have similar insurance riders to our contract with them? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on so, I mean, I would argue that that all the same standards apply, except that we should be adding professional liability to that certificate of insurance and obtaining proof of coverage that they have errors and omissions for the, the designs that they're stamping, signing off on, or presenting to you. Other than that, I would say that it all stays the same. And I'd actually take it a step further. And people listening may have different opinions on this. And and I sort of go back and forth myself as well, too. We've gotten to the point in our industry where sort of the design build, everyone's working together and everybody has input on design. You know, everyone's usually using a shared Google Drive or a Dropbox and everybody's having input on design. So your HVAC guy or, or even the general contractor, if you're hiring that out, there's an argument to be made that they may or should be including professional liability for themselves as well, too, if they're having input on design. But that's a, a, an entirely different topic. But sort of the lines have been blurred very, very much so over the last probably 10, 15 years that, that everybody with technology these days is having input on design. E&O is an interesting one. We had an experience a few years back uh, where there was a major omission on the architect side. And we thought that the E&O policy might be a good remedy for us, but it, it really wasn't. What we came to find out was that the E&O only covers the additional premium that was incurred because the design didn't contemplate this from the outset. So mm -hmm. to make just a crude analogy, if uh, they forgot a condenser on the roof, the cost of the condenser isn't covered. But if you have to open walls to run a line set back from the roof to your unit because it wasn't yeah. there from the get-go, uh, then you get that. So it's a so little I, tough. I'd even extrapolate that out even further and, and something that a lot of people don't realize and, and only realize it in the event of a claim, which we call an, an unintentional retention, which is basically an, an uncovered claim. So in every insurance policy, there's a, an exclusion for your work. So if the plumber is working, again, to use a crude analogy, if the plumber's working on a toilet, right, and, and causes, you know, water to escape and, and flood, 
the toilet's not covered, the resulting damage is. I had to flood in a basement from, we had a pump and tank system, and somehow that's a pipe on the bottom of that pump and tank cracked, flooded the whole basement. The basement was all insured, but the right. repair of that one pipe was not included in my uh, right. reimbursement. And that can be really problematic depending on how an adjuster or how an insurance carrier interprets what's considered that contractor's work. So take a, take a fire sprinkler contractor, for instance, right? You know, you install piping on a, on a whatever, name your building, you know, 15,000 square foot of piping. You know, they overpressurize the system, cause the whole system to blow out, okay? The resulting water damage is covered, but now you've got a compromised system that you need to redo yourself. Well, the fire sprinkler contractor does anyway. The system itself, there's an argument to be made, could not or would not be covered. All right. You could be talking thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to replace that entire system because it's compromised now. So very, very important to to note the your work exclusion and have a have a construction specialist that's gonna that's gonna argue on your behalf in the event of a claim with an adjuster or with an insurance carrier. I don't know if we're bleeding into the next uh, potential topic here, and I, and I know you mentioned it earlier as, as a piece of the policy that you should get, completed ops. I don't know if the example you were just mentioning is if something's happening during construction or, or is it one and the same? Can you just tell us a little bit about completed ops and how long it's in effect for after your contract is done, the last bills are paid, sure. the condoms are sold, that sort of thing? So completed ops is probably your most important coverage in the general liability policy. You know, it's one thing to have general liability in the event that somebody causes a claim while they're on premises, while they're on the job site, you know, God forbid scaffolding collapses or something like that, or somebody drops a hammer on somebody's head. But after you walk away from that job, construction defect claims, right? That That's basically your, your completed ops coverage if there's a problem after the job is done. So that they call it the statute of repose. And it differs state to state. In Massachusetts, the statute of repose for construction defect claims is six years. So as a contractor or as a developer, everything you touch, you're on the hook for for six years. And that's why, to be honest with you, that additional insured endorsement for completed operations is so vital and needs to be A, stipulated in a contract and B, included on a certificate of insurance. Because if, if that sole proprietor plumber only has, you know, the CG 2010, you know, one half of what we're looking for, which is basically covering you as additional insured while they're on the job site. But after they walk away, they may have that completed operations coverage. But if we're not stipulating or asking for it in a contract, there's a potential that the coverage may not be triggered one year, two years, three years, five years down the road. Ten times out of ten, completed ops is included on, on somebody's coverage. So you've got your premises and your ongoing operations limit, you've got your general aggregate limit, and then you've got your products and completed operations limit. And then you've got personal injury and advertising and fire legal liability and stuff like that. But 10 times out of 10, the coverage is always there. It's a matter of A, asking for it in a contract, and B, making sure that you're getting the right additional insured endorsement on the certificate of insurance. Sure. Can we, can we run a quick example? So say, for example, you're four years into it, the sale and the work is done, and there's something wrong with the HVAC, but now your HVAC guy who did have the completed ops coverage, that contractor is no longer in business. What, yep. what happens? It, it just The insurance companies just deal with it, or what happens if you can't even get a hold of that contractor? Yes, I mean, that, that's, that's why they have courts. But essentially, so you, we've already walked away from this project, right? Is it, a, is it a condo or an apartment building? Odds are there's a multi-parole policy on that building itself. Ideally, 
So let, let's say we've got it with travelers insurance and, and the HVAC system causes a fire because it was uh, improperly installed. We're talking $100,000. The insurance carrier is going to come in and pay that hundred grand. They would love to then go back to the contract and then go back to the certificate of insurance, see who installed it. We see this a lot on roofs, to be honest with you, where you've got you know roof a roof that was improperly installed or they try to go back to the contractor. Essentially, that's where that subrogation aspect comes into play. And that insurance carrier is going to look to subrogate against the contractor, the HVAC contractor. If he's not around, travelers or whomever is going to get stuck with that loss. Interesting. That, that's, yeah. a good, that's a helpful example. I think we got builder's risk. Builder's risk is going to kick in if there's a fire or loss to the structure as it's going up. In general liability, I, had a, I was building a job two years ago. And a jogger came by and alleged to have tripped over a temporary fence uh, stanchion. Yep. And it was, it was my first experience of that hot potato thing where you immediately started to see like what I, what I call it, shit flow downhill. And um, it went from me to the site guy to the temp fence installer. Yep. And I actually had the temp fence installer certificate of insurance. You know, fortunately, this, this kind of went away on its own. I, I think this woman sustained no real injury. And I think she probably couldn't even get anyone to take this thing pro bono or, uh, you know, not pro bono, but on, con- what do they call it? Consignment retainer. So I never, I never really heard back from it, but we got a pretty nasty letter, which scared me. And uh, that would be a, an example of a GL uh, general yeah. liability concern. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's a great, great question. And that's a great example of how a claim is supposed to work as you eloquently put it, shit rolls downhill. So ideally you want to, sure. you want to have contracts and certificates in place to make sure that that happens. Right. So that the buck stops with the person who put the, the hose down. You know, I had a situation where we had a, um, a utility contractor running access hoses because they were working on the sewer main or whatever the case may be. And a postal worker tripped over the access hose. And that's a great example of general liability. It's not completed operations. It's premises and ongoing operations. So in your situation, Mark, Thankfully, you had that certificate for the temp fence guy. Had you not, and the buck was going to stop with you, it would have been really important for you to have, as an owner in GC, your own general liability policy on that particular project for premises and ongoing operations. Often overlooked because usually the bank won't require it. All they really are concerning themselves with is the builder's risk. They want to see that their loan is insured in case, God forbid, the place goes up in flames. But what if you? end up getting sued, you know? So often that's overlooked at closing and and during, and, you know, it's an added expense that maybe somebody says, ah, I don't need it. You know, all my guys that I hire, they all have Hmm. insurance, they all have certificates and I've done business on a handshake for 30 years and I've used the same subs forever. That's all well and good until somebody misses a payment. And, you know, it looks, it looks like their policy was in cancellation at the time that, you know, so-and-so slipped on that hose. Now, now, now what? One other change that came about from my business, I, I've since started putting cameras along the fence line because I know that that woman got up and continued her job and went on her merry way if she even fell, you know, but I would have loved to have had that on camera. I actually um, wanted to go back to builder's risk. You know, people have this, this common misconception that all insurance is the same. General liability, one million, two million. What difference does it make who I buy it from? You know, builder's risk, it's covering the building. You know, what do I need to be worried about? It's all well and good to get that proof of coverage for your $800,000 three family that you're turning into condos and you see 800 grand and you say, great, I'm covered. 
right? But within each builder's risk policy, there's several endorsements, common endorsements that people should be making sure that they have. And, and we can get real deep into the weeds, which I, which I don't want to do, but just basic stuff, right? Prorated cancellation. So a lot of guys will chalk this up as a loss. They pay, you know, 1,500, two grand, 2,500, whatever it is for a builder's risk. It's a 12 month policy. They finish in eight months and, and go back to business and cancel the policy. And, you know, they, they paid the money, the insurance carrier, and that's it. More often than not, you're able to obtain prorated cancellation, right? So that if you finish it early, or let's say it's going to go longer, you're not on the hook for minimum earned premiums, uh, you know, 25% minimum earned or minimum in deposit. That's essentially money out the window. And that starts to make sense and really hit you in the pocket when you're talking about larger projects and the several millions of dollars, okay? Testing, really important to make sure that you have there. On occasion, testing can be excluded, which is really going to be a problem. We've, we've seen this in real life claims examples, and we were talking about this before we went on air. I believe it was that project in Dorchester that burned $50 million you know, two years ago, whatever the case may be, they turned the HVAC on or a compressor that was up on the roof. It was, uh, they, they were testing it and something was too close to the unit itself, caused a fire $50 million later. Had they not had hot and, te- hot and cold testing included, could have ended up being a problem. So again, prorated cancellation, testing and equipment breakdown. And then the other thing to be cognizant of is particularly now with a crazy real estate market, permission to occupy. So I've got a, an existing project going on right now where um, you know, they're building several hundred units and some are two uh, side-by-side townhouses, some are four side-by-side townhouses. They have the opportunity to close on one of the units before the other unit is complete. Technically, that's not supposed to happen unless you have the permission to occupy endorsement. And again, this stuff doesn't cost anything. It's just a matter of knowing to ask for it trying to think of some other some other uh that's a really numbers. interesting insight i've seen that too even if you don't if you don't ask you don't get and they're going to start right. with the baseline where they want it and you can you might have some latitude right i mean i've been saying this for years and i have underwriters that would probably smack my hand for saying it but it's the truth it's the insurance company's job to give you the least amount of coverage for the most amount of money it's <laughs> my job as the broker and and your job as a consumer to make sure that that you're educated, you know what to ask, you know what to ask for. And again, nine times out of 10, these things don't cost any money. It's just a matter of asking for it from the underwriter. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting and, and very helpful tips. I've looked at insurance policies, the actual policy after you've paid the bill and you, you get the 80-page document. I mean, let's be honest, we're not reading that. <laughs> so right. we really are relying heavily on our, on our brokers to, to make sure we're not undercovered uh, and also make sure we're not paying for something that doesn't make sense either. So it, it is definitely a, a good Yeah, the balance. devil is always in the details. And it's one thing to, like I said, get that proof of coverage, that binder at closing that says my project is insured for what for the value it needs to be insured at. But but really, it's important to drill deep and find out exactly what endorsements, exclusions, forms, conditions, warranties are really present on that as well, too, which actually that, that's important to talk about as well, too. Anytime a consumer, a contractor, an owner, developer sees terms like conditions, warranties, protective safeguard endorsements, these are all things that an insurance carrier, that was a real uh, technical term, things that an insurance carrier will build into a policy to to limit the coverage triggers. So I'm only going to provide coverage to you if you have an active sprinkler system. I'm only going to provide coverage to you if you have... um, 
a certificate of insurance from a subcontractor that's on the job site. If you don't have that certificate or if they don't have active coverage that meets the, the coverages that you have, your deductible is going to go from 1000 to 25000 These are all things that that really, the first thing I always do is look at the forms page on an insurance policy that someone is presenting to me, whether it's an underwriter or a, a potential client, and, and drill down. So you could have like a subcontractor warranty or an independent contractor warranty. That's always stuff that raises an eyebrow and says, I need to read that form because where is an insurance carrier limiting their coverage if you hire somebody that doesn't perform for A to J conditions? You know, it's, it's can be uh, can be really off point. So, Rob, one thing that I've often heard is that you should never be cute with your declared value on your building permit. What can happen in the event of a loss is you go and say, you know, I was eight hundred thousand into construction, and the insurance company could pull your permit and say you swore to the building department that it was only two hundred fifty thousand of construction, and mm-hmm. you can get caught. Is that is there any truth to that, or is that a hypocrisy? Honestly, I've, I've never experienced that. I've never experienced that because there's any number of explanations where, you know, you get, you get into a project and you think it's going to cost you 300 grand and, you know, this okay. cost overruns or that, you know, you decided to, to, the homeowner decided to make the addition bigger or whatever, you know, whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. I've never run into a situation where an insurance carrier denied to pay a claim because the value on the building permit uh, wasn't the actual value. What I will say, though, and something really important to take note of is I have had a claim declined which had to be litigated because permits, we executed a builder's risk on say January 1st, permits were not pulled within, I believe it was 60 days. And on the 68th day, we had a pipe burst and the carrier denied to honor the claim because they said, you basically let a a home or a property sit there vacant without doing any work to it and without pulling permits. And there was any number of reasons, valid reasons why permits weren't pulled and were they actually doing work on it? Well, we were cleaning up the yard. We were cleaning out the basement. We were in and out of the property, but we didn't pull permits yet. And we weren't. We didn't start gutting walls or anything like that. And that's not the purpose of a builder's risk policy. They should have had a vacant building policy on that. Ultimately, it was litigated. Ultimately, the, the insurance carrier paid some money out. But who wants to deal with that? Right. It's a nightmare. One other quick question I had was with respect to uh, workers' comp. So we're structured in a way where when we pull the building permit, we need to fill out a form saying that we have no employees. We still have a workers' comp policy, uh, but it's really to, I guess, protect us in case any of our subs either don't have a policy or they're underinsured. Can you shed a little more light on, on how workers' comp policies work in general for both the, the GC and the subs themselves? Yeah, you know, great question. And occasionally a gray area because realistically, uh, you know, I, I think People, particularly, uh, you know, owner developer GCs are under, under a misconception that we can just sort of give you like a blanket workers' comp policy that's going to cover everybody and anybody. And it, it really doesn't exist by right. The insurance carrier wants to collect the premium for their their real exposure that's on the job site. But obviously, if you don't have any employees and everybody you hire has workers' comp, basically your policy is just a placeholder and sort of a quote-unquote catch-all in the event that, like you said, the plumber doesn't have comp or he hires a guy that doesn't have comp or you know their policy lapses or something like that. So to, to answer your question, like I said, I, I hesitate to even go on record and say, yeah, you know, <laughs> we've got these blanket, I've, I've got a few blanket workers' comp policies on the shelf that I can throw at you, no problem. But um, 
Usually that type of exposure is going to get picked up at audit. So basically what you would get as that owner developer GC is that they call it like an if any policy, which again, that that's not a technical term. It doesn't exist, but you'd list several class codes on there for guys that you would hire, your electrician, your plumber, your framer, your roofer, your whatever. It would be on an if any basis. It would come in at minimum premium, probably around like seven, 800 bucks, allows you to pull the permit. You probably get audited at the end of the year and the auditor is going to say, all right, let's see your checkbook register. Who did you write checks to? And I need a corresponding certificate of insurance for every contractor that you wrote checks to. In the absence of that, we're going to charge you for you know, $5,000 that you paid to Joe's Plumbing under the plumbing class code at $3.60 per hundred, whatever the case may be. I had that exact experience you know, at the end of the year last year. It wasn't super pleasant, but fortunately, my paperwork's pretty organized. But Yeah, you know, um, you're always you end up playing catch up and you're on the phone and, you know, calling your landscaper and your plumber and your electrician and say, hey, you know, give me a cert for last year. I'm getting an audit. They want to charge me X amount. You know, maybe people realize this, maybe they don't. You can always dispute an audit. Very often, if you don't respond to an audit, everybody's busy, paperwork gets lost, whatever the case may be. The carrier will issue what's called an estimated audit. And basically, they'll, they'll just double your premium for last year to get your attention. And then you get a bill and you call up your broker and say, what's this all about? And it's, ah, it's an estimated audit because you didn't respond. Call them up, schedule it. You can, you can get yourself out of this and just provide them the paperwork. Or if they do perform an audit, let's say they change class codes on you or they, you know, very often a contractor will have a guy that, that sort of goes between two different jobs. You know, maybe one day he's in a machine digging a, digging a trench and another day he's, uh, you know, inside sweeping and, you know, whatever the case may be. And he does different things for you. If your records aren't diligent and you're not keeping his hours accordingly, there's an argument to be made, and very often it is made, that they're going to take that employee's entire payroll and put him in the highest rated class, which can really be a, a shock for some people. So it's, you know, the, again, the devil's in the details. Awesome. This has been great, right? I think just to summarize it, I think we really uh, covered builder's risk, workers' comp. We talked a lot about the things that you should be looking for on those policies and different little technicalities that you should protect yourself from and look for. And then we talked a lot about the features of a contract and why it's super important to do the right things up front so that the insurance you think you have will actually perform if you need it to. And this whole hot potato trickle down uh, policy claim yeah. process is about probably about as fun as it sounds. So, you know, just everybody be safe and. Take your time with the work. <laughs> one of the most, certainly one of the most important, maybe not the most glamorous, but features of our business is uh, insurance and making sure that you've properly managed risk because it's just one of those things that can totally sink your ship. It's like, it's almost, to me, it's almost like title insurance when you're buying a property. You hope you never have to use it, but man, if you need it, it's so valuable. Well, awesome, guys. Uh, Rob, if folks want to find you, get a hold of you, how can they do that? So my name is uh, Rob Baracy. I am a senior vice president with Starkweather and Shepley Insurance. And you can find us at uh, www.starshep.com or you can always feel free to email me and I'll send you guys uh, those couple of articles, the hot potato and stuff like that. If any of your listeners uh, want some additional information. Great, we'll put it up on our Facebook page and thanks everybody for listening, for reviewing, uh, for rating and we'll see you on the next one. Stay healthy and safe. All right, thanks everybody. Cheers.